We are all born artists and creators, yet slowly but surely our false programming from society, culture, and family takes us down a different path. I was born a spiritual gangster, and the awakened dad is the journey back to myself. My name is Brent Hurd, and I've taken the journey of achieving what I thought was success and found myself lying on an operating table facing the edge of life. My mission is to help as many of us reclaim who it is that we truly are and help 100 million children live out their greatest lives. Join me each Thursday in listening to the stories of those who have made it back to themselves and lived a life of fulfillment and joy. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Awakened Dad episode number three. We have the most amazing guest today, Amber Lillystrom. Amber is a transformational branding strategist and business coach author and speaker. She's been featured by Forbes Entrepreneur and Working Mother magazine. She's the host of the Amber Lillystrom Show podcast, which has over 100,000 monthly downloads and the creator of the Ignite Your Soul Summit, an annual live event in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Amber's mission is to empower women to position themselves as sought after experts and thought leaders through the creation of an online brand presence. Her transformational mindset work sets her apart in an industry focused on a strategy first, inner work later approach. Amber spent 10 years working in collegiate athletics marketing before launching her business. She managed the University of New Hampshire Wildcats brand, where she taught sports marketing and mentored student interns. She was recognized as one of the top sports marketing professionals in the nation and left her corporate career after a life-altering near-death experience that served as the catalyst for her to launch her business. You are about to hear more about this near-death experience, about her philosophy, and about the dream that lives inside of each one of you. Welcome, Amber Lillystrom. So let's welcome Amber Lillystrom to The Awakened Dad. Welcome, Amber. Hey, Brian, I'm so excited to be here with you today. I know that we have been in touch for quite some time on a variety of things. It was, I think it was actually maybe a year ago now that I had actually reached out for some help in building out this business, my seat of greatness, after watching you and reading so much and consuming so much of your content. So I I am truly honored to have you on the show. Thank you. That means a lot to me, Brent. I'm honored to be here and I'm proud of you for doing it. This is such an important conversation and the work that you are creating and contributing is so needed here. So I'm just psyched that it's happening and that I have the honor of getting to talk to you here on your show today. Wow. That's, that makes me truly happy. I'm like trying to contain my excitement. I'm (laughs) sure you can see it, but I, I really just wanted to kick off. And as we have talked and I've told you about the awakened dad and really the things that I really have been uncovering, not only within my own self and my own story, But in others, as this has come to to fruition, around this concept of our unique seed of greatness. And, you know, as I went through my corporate world and my, my own illness that led to this awakening of mine, and then it really began uncovering this unique seed of greatness of mine. And we'll talk a little bit about it. And I know you do a lot of this work. So I wanted to start with your life and how you have gotten to the place that you have gotten. Because I look at you as someone who is truly living this out, truly living this unique seed 
that you came with, that you were born with, that you somehow got back to. It's super inspiring to me and the listeners. So I'd love to just rewind a bit Mm -hmm. and talk a bit about really how you grew up where you grew up, sort of what was life like as a kid, and then get into work and then into where you are today. Yeah, sure. Thanks for the invitation. So I grew up for the first nine years of my life, just north of Boston in a city called Reading, Massachusetts. And I was born in Boston and my mom's family lived. They they were based in Wakefield and surrounding suburbs and all that. And we were pretty close with that whole neck of my mom's family, the siblings and their spouses and the cousins and all that. And when I was around like three or four years old, we had, we experienced a trauma with an extended family member. And in, in this case, it was me being sexually um, abused. And what I start here, because really it is my earliest memories, uh, was that whole ordeal and the after effects of family division and whose side people were having to choose who they believed. And, you know, it's pretty traumatic to look back on it as an adult and just to think about, wow, I can't even imagine what my parents were going through, but they, they stood by me and fought for me and believed me. And I think that part of the story is really like the beginning of that seed. And it's something that I don't take lightly because I know that for many survivors, that's not necessarily always the case that their stories are believed at that very tender and vulnerable time. And that is such a tragedy. And I was blessed to have the parents that I have, and they were there, they were there for me. And I remember one of the things that my mom's sort of central goal was to help me get closure and to help me go through the exercise of, she wouldn't have said like getting justice to me at that age, but it was like, she wanted there to be a resolution. And she wanted me to stand up for myself in ways that I think really must have taken a ton of courage as a parent to know that she was going to support her child to go and testify in front of a courtroom full of people when she couldn't even be there. I was five. And I don't know, Brent, this is the tricky part because all I know is my own experience and what it looks like to live in the world through these eyes. But I remember being a really little kid, like that five, six-year-old kid. I remember the scenes. I remember being in the, the hallways remember listening to the, I don't know who they were, but my mom says it was like the attorney general or people at the courthouse. I was literally at the Boston city municipal courthouse in front of a grand jury. And I remember hearing them saying things like she's getting older. She's going to forget denouncing my truth, even though I really clearly knew what my story was and really clearly knew what my truth was. And I remember being frustrated because I felt so scared. I felt like so much pressure as such a small child to have to go and do that, go in front of a room full of adults by myself and say words little girls are not supposed to say. So that in and of itself is just like unfathomable and awful in so many ways, but there are also so many different shades of awful that it could be too. So it's my story, right? And so it's not awful to me. It just is. And I remember one of the central themes that really got me through was my mom teaching me about what courage was and really using that word intentionally. And I adopted it. And I remember it being like an anchor for me throughout it. And just remembering, I remember saying to my little self, have courage, Amber, have courage. And using that as like the buoy to get me through. And I also knew that if I did it, if I did testify, 
then it would be over. Mm. Then I wouldn't have to anymore. And so I remember there was a very, there was this particular date and I had, and I also say like, I had failed to be able to testify two times prior because I was scared. Mm -hmm. And so I remember them getting irritated with me. And I remember the, what that felt like as a kid to be like, they're mad at me because I'm scared. And I finally got the courage and I remember I did it. And I had another opportunity to go one more time, but I would have to see my abuser. And I, I remember choosing that I didn't want to. The other reason why I chose that I didn't want to, and this is a real, this is real inside the walls of my mind. This person had a child and as a kid, I couldn't imagine taking that kid's dad from him. Mm-hmm. I knew that he would go to jail mm-hmm. and I just, I was like, I'm good. I remember just knowing it was complete. Yep. And, and also I feel like there's some sort of weird karmic thing, right? Like we had a restraining order. He never violated it. He never bothered us. In fact, I remember actually at my grandfather's funeral when I was 16, when the restraining order was still in place, I gave permission for him to be there for his wife. And, uh, and I remember my aunt was like losing it at one point. And he, and I watched him tell her like, stop, don't, she was losing it towards me as a 16 year old child. And so all that's a lot, but I also think in some ways, because what other way is there to think about it? This is the thing I have to say, right? Like I'm not just saying this to try to minimize my trauma, but like I have to live with myself yeah. and with the reality of what happened. Yep. So it's like, what, what pathway am I going to choose? Mm-hmm. And so the one that I chose was to rise up. Mm-hmm. I felt as if there was some sort of God's word spoken over me at a very young age saying this didn't happen to you for nothing. Mm-hmm. You are here to help others to suffer less, right? To, and I remember seeing vividly at that time that somehow I knew I would tell my story one day. And it wasn't then, but I knew someday I would. I knew that I would write books someday. Like I had this clear vision in me. And I then, and I then at that point, once we had the restraining order set and life moved forward, we ultimately ended up moving north up to New Hampshire. And my mom, I didn't know it at the time. My mom wanted us just to be able to like, have an idyllic childhood and not her not have to worry and run around barefoot catching frogs and being in the forest and all that. And, and we did have that. My parents fought for that. And so that's the way that I see this story. And I also feel like I can't unknow what I know. Mm -hmm. And so I've always had this sense in me, Brent, of do the right thing, rise above. Like it was, it was in me so early. Mm. I was in therapy at such a young age. So I was already doing this emotional intelligence work as a five, four, five, six, seven, eight year old. And so that really planted a lot of seeds for me in terms of the way I see the world and how I see myself and essentially like what I'm capable of and how I move through challenges and adversity. Yeah. Wow. That is powerful. That is incredibly powerful. The, the piece that really stuck out to me was this courage piece from your mom. Like what a moment to insert such a powerful word in a young person's mind who has just been through such a traumatic event. Yeah. Um, Have you, I'm sure you've since obviously talked to your mom about what, like how did she even have the strength to do that at the time? Did you, I'm really curious about that piece. Yeah. And my mom is like the quintessential mama lion, but like she is as fierce 
as they come. And ultimately on the other side of all of this, she stood on the, the state house steps in Boston, helped to get a law passed for survivors. Mm. So yeah, it makes me emotional to talk about it, but yeah. yeah, she, yeah. Like I'm her dream. I'm her child. As you said, dad, it's, you'll do anything for your kids. Yeah. And my mom modeled that and she had great loss. Her family like really basically abandoned us and stopped talking to us. After, so after was, everything happened? Yeah, there's great heartache in all of this. There's great heartache and loss. But I think my mom just showed me like over and over again, like the right thing is the right thing. And I I will always stand by that and I will model that for my children. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. I, I, and then to take that experience, which, listen, I have this belief that things happen to us for very specific reasons. I think I it's not too far reaching for me to think that we actually set these things up before we come. I actually believe in that, that we all deal with the challenges that we're given in life, that in some cases we actually set them up for ourselves to get to the places that we're, we're here to get to. And obviously such a, a, a traumatic experience, but something that now has served so many human beings on this planet that it would be hard to say these are not interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. I think it can be a, it can be a hard thing to say that at times with, with victims and trauma survivors. And I just think it's a very individual orientation and I don't think there's anything wrong, Brent, with giving ourselves the medicine that we need. And we all have different spiritual beliefs and foundations and all of that. And so I tend to feel that way, even though I just go, man, that it's cruel. That would be the thing. But I would just, the reality is I just wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't gone through the the whole of that experience, not just the trauma, but was the, all of the rise on the other side and the expression of love for my parents, my mother, I wouldn't know that at the same intensity had that experience not happened. And so to me, it's what's helpful and let's really dial down on that. What's helpful. And there are also a million different ways that it could have gone and and ways I could have gone. And so I'm grateful for the steadfast love and support of the parents that I have and the family that I have, because it it really has carved me into who I get to be today. You know, this, as, as I talk to you, just intuitively. And I have done this even before when I would, just when I would see your content or I would see you expressing this level of quiet, deep strength that is the exemplary of someone who would literally be able to accomplish anything that they set their mind to, which is how you strike me as just we're talking and as I've gotten to know you. And It's also the thing that feels like you show up in like the purest expression of you, which Mm -hmm. is this, you know, we're all given this like deep, pure expression of ourselves in this life. And in so many reasons and cases, we don't show up that way. And we don't show up that way because of our fear of what people are going to think of us, rejection, approval, conditioning, the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. you strike me as the purest authentic version of you that is stepping every single day. What uh, does that take? uh, Is that something that you work on? Is that something that just comes to you? Talk a little bit about that if you would. Yeah. Thank you, Brent. That's very meaningful. I think 
when you've had a lot stripped away in life and, you know, I've gone through divorce, I've gone through a near death experience. I've been a person who was a division one athlete who had three major knee surgeries and had to learn how to walk again. I was the sole captain of the team and I had a torn VMO muscle and couldn't even really run, but I was still like doing it. I think I've just had so many trials in life of being humbled over and over again. And I also think it's the lessons that my parents have instilled in us, you know, of compassion for, for people. And I think it took me a long time to turn that mirror back to myself to start to offer myself the same compassion. I think achievement was this sort of like gateway through which I felt like I had to live in order to be loved. And something happened when I became a mom, like this integration piece occurred where it was like, oh, I can't, I really, I can't do it that way anymore. And now I'm the mirror and she's the mirror, my daughter. It's like everything is out in the open now. And I, there's no job on this planet that I want to be better for than being my daughter's mom. Yeah. No, I, so I want I want to talk a little bit about this that the achievement piece because and I, and and I know you've experienced it in your life I experienced it in my life I think a lot of us not just yeah. men but women as well go through this and it's this is actually crazy I purchased the domain the epidemic of success and what I mean by that is is we all go out with this deep drive to achieve whatever achieve means. For me, it meant career and success and money and titles and size of teams. And for other people, it means similar things or or different. And I know you've uncovered so much of this with your work and with your clients. Can you talk a little bit about where, what you've learned about this phenomenon? Why is it so deeply bred into us? And how do we wind it back or how do we redirect it in our lives? Yeah, it's a great question. I think at the core, Brent, it takes looking in the mirror and asking yourself why you want a thing. And that sounds like a simple question. However, what you discover in the answer isn't always what you expect and nor is it comfortable to reckon with. And I think that for so many of us, we are the products of parents who were children of parents who came here from other places in some cases, or were the first generation, second generation immigrants and talk about adversity, talk about challenge, talk about stress, talk about survival. Mm. And if you read any of the books out there, um, there's a book by Mark Wallen called It Didn't Start With You. And it really talks about generational trauma and the ways in which that's passed down to us. And and if you think about women and how our eggs work, my daughter was was in my mother's womb, essentially, right? Within me when I when she was pregnant with me. So Ani was there and I was there. And then so that's mind blowing to think about. But just epigenetically, those the impact there is still in existence in us today and in our children. And so I think like some of the work, the, the, the real work starts with asking my clients often the uncomfortable question of whose love did you crave the most growing up? What was it like to be you? What was little Brent like, you know? And, and I know that from a 
progress standpoint. It's why the hell does that matter? I just want to build my business. But here's the thing. You're going to try to, you're going to try to walk the success path of winning the love from whomever you craved it from in whatever orientation it was required of you as a kid. If you haven't acknowledged that and done that work. And until we can get to the place of compassionately parenting ourselves, we're still under the influence Mm -hmm. of wanting to win mom and dad's love. And it's a unique equation that is different for every single one of us. But the joke of like mommy, daddy issues, it's a real thing. And it's not a shameful thing. My parents have mommy and daddy issues and their parents aren't alive anymore. And so guess what? Those mommy, daddy issues have been passed on to me. And likewise, where I haven't met at the intersection of saying, I need to face this head on. I need to do this deep work. It's really important because at the end of the day, I'm a sovereign being, but I'm not acting like it. And I don't want to pass that baton on to my child. And so I think when it comes to success, so much of it is this inherited notion of what success is. And the question becomes, is this actually my definition of success, of fulfillment, of contentment, of joy, of abundance? Do I even want these things? And I think many of us can look back over the landscape of our lives and find moments along the way when we were trying to earn that love through someone else's definition of success And it didn't go so well. Yeah. 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 It strikes such a chord. It strikes such a chord with me. Even as I went through my career, it was always, you know, my dad was so proud. I mean, as I was going through these big companies and running, he was so proud. And that was such a thing for me that just, it was fuel. It was fuel. It was fuel to the point where I was forwarding, you know, him emails from people when I was working for Twitter from Jack Dorsey, I would forward him emails. So he would see it. He was so proud and it was this cycle and cycle and cycle. And it's so interesting today because obviously we all go through the cycle and then we hit this point. And and I know that you hit the point and I hit the point. And I'm really curious as you hit the point, I know you had this corporate career and then made this decision to, to move out. I'm really curious how you, A, identified these things within yourself. And then what were some of the tools or techniques that you used to help yourself as you were moving through this fear and some of the trauma or even some of the call it mommy or daddy issues that you talk yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> would love to hear about that. Well, I think the first one was, I, I, I believe that in the sort of anatomy of a dream, it starts with inspiration. And so inside of that, there's either triumph or trauma. And sometimes there's both. And what I mean by that with the triumph piece is typically observing someone else's triumph and saying, I want some of it. And the trauma is, and not everybody has this, but it's the, this happened to me and I want to rise up and make a difference. I want to rise through this. And so that's the dreams usually kick off from those types of that, those, the catalyst that is the triumph or the trauma. And For me, I was in my 20s, I was I did some fitness competitions. I think it's important also to note that in the background, I was I was an elite athlete as a teenager and then also into college. So I was a soccer player. I'd made this decision. I remember being a nine year old and going, mom and dad can't afford college. I don't want to burden them with that. Time to pick out a sport. Now, my dad was a division one athlete. He was the captain of the track and uh, field team at UConn. He also was captain of the football team. He ended up serving in Vietnam and like coming back and finishing his seasons. But 
My dad was a division one athlete. I mean, even just as recent as this past weekend, he was, he competed in the new England championships at 76 as a kayak on a kayak race. He's an early stage Parkinson's and he's still doing it. So that's my dad. Like that's the drive of dad. He's not like going to go out on just like casual Sunday paddle. He's like out there timing himself, like paddling an average of seven miles. It's like, okay, dad. So I've always had that kind of like, yeah standard, right? My brother was the captain of the Yukon track team as the pole vaulter and he was the big East champion. So just like in our blood, my mom was an athlete too, and a runner and all these things, but she grew up in a time Brent where they didn't have sports for her. She could either be a majorette or a cheerleader. And she was not about that. So Mm -hmm. she would go and train with the boys gymnastics team in high school. So like, I just, athleticism was also a, a, a thread and therapy and also an identity for us as a family and really still is to this day. And so nine-year-old doing the math in my head, college seems expensive. Mom and dad are always stressed about money. I'm going to put this in my backpack. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. So I started playing. I was terrible. I played through the years. I was always playing with boys because we didn't have girls teams until I was like 13. I started playing with girls and immediately it was like scoring all the goals winning all the games, just like huge change of going from playing with boys and then now playing with girls. Went to college. I had this scholarship. I played, had the surgeries, la-di-da, had a pretty decent career, but more from the standpoint of like leadership and personal development than my actual achievements I had hoped for as an athlete. But I also in the background had an eating disorder. Mm. And I think a lot of elite athletes do. I was restrictive eating. I was overtraining. And this is something dads pay attention to this with your kids, pay attention to this with your daughters. Back then, I remember our club coach was like wanting to do body fat testing in this. We're a bunch of young girls who none of us have our period because we're playing all the time. Like we never stop running. Our bodies are not even menstruating. And so this went on and then I go to college and it's like, college. It's just, you eat terribly. You're running all the time. You're training all the time. You gain a little bit of weight because you're in college. And then it's like, you just, the cycle continues. And so I had an eating disorder for about 15 years until I decided to deal with it head on when I was 29, 30 years old and go meet with an actual psychiatrist and say like, I got to I'm not going to become a mother and carry this forth. And there were a lot of body image issues in my family as well. So I watched a lot of women struggle with that stuff. And then I hid it behind being this high level athlete. So that was a coping mechanism. I'm I'm, I'm sharing this part of the story because I was coping with my stress. I was coping with my anxiety. I was coping with my feelings of inadequacy and my self-loathing really truly with this eating disorder. And then also with my playing, because if I achieved in soccer, I felt worthy. I felt Uh good. If I got good grades, I felt worthy. I felt good. But that machine didn't slow down. I was always going. And so I remember this one day, Brent, in my corporate career, and I was ultimately when I left my job, I was an associate athletic director for the University of New Hampshire athletic department. And I was running our marketing and branding and sports, some of our corporate sponsorship stuff behind the scenes, execution of our contracts and doing some sales here and there. And I had this big job. I had an internship of 15 kids. I taught at the university. I taught sport marketing. I was moving a million miles per hour. I've always been that way. It's like the only mode that I knew. I was also doing some fitness competitions, which was just code for hiding my eating disorder. And I remember watching these women and and seeing the entrepreneurial careers that they created and going, I want to do that. They were writing inspirational blogs and They were doing it through the lens of fitness, which isn't what I wanted because I knew I wasn't going to be a fitness wellness teacher person, but I was just really intrigued and I was really enamored with like how they were building these brands out and using online and starting to use Facebook when it came into existence and doing all these different things. And so I started my own little 
Tumblr blog. And I started writing just inspirational pieces and poetry and things like that. And people were liking it, right? And commenting. And I had these different identities going on. And then there was this point, I remember this one day and I was standing in my, the hallway about to go into my office after I just grabbed some papers off of the copy machine. And I looked down the hallway and I saw our athletic director, who was one of my favorite mentors and a really good friend and someone I will always be so grateful for. He'd give me so many opportunities. And I saw him down the hall and I thought to him, he was like shaking hands with a corporate sponsor or a donor. I don't know exactly, but he was basically shaking hands and going into his office to have a meeting. And it like hit me like a ton of bricks in that moment. I thought, I don't want to sit in that chair, mm-hmm. but I'm on the track to become a division one athletic director. I'm being groomed for that. And I told them I wanted that. Yeah, of course. But I don't want that. Yeah. I don't want it at all. How old were you? I was in my late twenties. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And I'm standing there in my heels and my dress pants and I'm holding my little stack of papers and I'm moving hundred miles per hour. And I'm just like, Whoa, Mm -hmm. what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. And I remember going to sit at my desk and just having this like epiphany Brent of, if you know that, then you got to do something about it, lady. And so from there, I, we went through fertility treatments when I was 30, just about, no, I just turned 31. And on our first try, we got pregnant, which was truly like by the grace of God, as if probably about our recent attempts at that and not being able to conceive. And so we got pregnant on the first try. And, and I remember like my whole pregnancy, it was just all these invitations of this is too much. Like it's pushing you too much. Like, you know what you want to do. You know what you want to do. You know what you want to do. And we fast forward to my daughter's birthday and I can tell that story, but I'll hit the pause button here in case you want to ask anything about the lead up there before I go into the that no, story. No, no, I, you have me on my edge. I think it's funny that on the day that I went into labor, Brent, I was at home. It was like seven in the morning. Ben was a police officer at the time and he was off at work. And I was literally like, I felt terrible. I'm sitting at home. It's the day before my actual due date. Mm-hmm. And I'm at home and I'm just like, oh, I feel so bad. I, I made myself breakfast and I couldn't even eat it. I just felt super nauseous and super sick to my stomach. And I was having all these cramps. And I just was like, wow, this is so weird. And I texted my sister-in-law, who's an ER nurse. And I was like, hey, Jess, I don't really feel very good. This is weird. What's going on? And I'm just, I keep having cramps. Yeah. And she goes, how far apart are your cramps, Amber? And I'm like, oh, like, I don't know, like five minutes-ish. And she's like, oh, okay. So that's called labor. (laughs) And you might want to call your doctor. And so I think the reason I tell this part of the story is because I was so still so oblivious. Like I literally emailed my boss from the couch in my bathroom saying like, I'm feeling crampy today. So I'll be in by noon. Mm -hmm. Like I just have to go slow this morning. Like I told her I was coming to work. I was in labor. And so I call the doctor and they're like, you can barely talk. And also division one athlete, like my pain threshold uh-huh. is like Hi. unreal. And I'm, I literally at this point, I'm now like not able to talk. She's like, please have a neighbor drive you. Like, please we'll send it. I'm like, no, no I'm, I'm good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll call the neighbor. Of course. I definitely didn't call the neighbor. Yeah. I pack my little suitcase, which I hadn't even finished. I get it in the car. I wait in between contractions to pull out and I drive myself to the hospital in oh labor. God. I got there. I was six centimeters dilated oh when I got there. God, that like, is I was un- in labor. That is, I mean, that that's such a clear description <laughs> of you and where you were. And also like, don't deny this level of strength that was part of you that you still carry today 
which that story exemplifies very clearly. <laughs> I mean, strength or insanity, I don't know. I yeah. guess a little bit of both. Yeah. But I, I got in there and then we went into the whole process and I got an epidural and I thought, wow, like this is surprisingly ease filled at this point. Like we're where we need to be. Like Ben is here. He left. He called my boss. Yeah. Said, She's not coming in today. And um, I pushed for like four hours and things weren't progressing. And so they said, now like we're kind of in trouble town and we got to go do a C-section. Yeah. You, you aren't doing great. Your body's starting to have some issues. Her heart rate's too high. Like oh, yeah. where's the fastest way I to get try. there? Totally. Yep. So I went in and um, within a few minutes, they did more of a, like a spinal epidural situation and they laid me down on the table and within not even two minutes, three minutes, I started to notice that I was having a hard time breathing. Mm. And it was like my lung volume was getting shorter and shorter and shorter to yeah. the point where I couldn't breathe at all on my own. There was a mask over my face and they hadn't even begun the procedure yet. And I'm like passing out, wow, going unconscious. And this thing happened, Brent, in there, which is just the most important part of the story. It, it Obviously, I survived. So that's important, too. <laughs> but the first part was the first thing that met me there in that darkness yeah. was this deep gripping feeling of frustration because I knew what I wanted to be doing in my life and I wasn't doing it. Wow. And you felt that at that moment. At that moment. It was the first thing. Wow. Yeah. It was like the darkest feeling. And, 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 and you were still unable to breathe, couldn't get air. I mean, I wasn't conscious, so I don't uh -huh. know what was happening to wow. my physical body, but I was not there. <laughs> I would, wow. My subconscious mind was having a different experience. Yeah. And so that happened. And then I had this immediately from there, it went to this sort of out of body thing, which if you watch, um, there's a documentary actually on Netflix about it. It's exactly the same, oh, right? I, I mean, listen. You've, you've watched it. Not only have I watched it, I have studied it. This is, yes. I am fascinated. So yes. you had one? You were, yeah. okay, let's talk yeah. about it. I need to know about this. Yeah, so the bird's eye view thing yeah. happened. Did it really? And I saw Ben. So and, you're you're floating up, you're at the top of the, okay. Yeah, yeah, Ben and yep. where he was. Mm -hmm. And I could see him like looking through the set, the camera settings, like trying to get it right, Dang. getting ready. He was waiting for me. He was waiting oh. for them to come get him. Then I saw my parents and then I saw myself. And it was like, when I saw myself, I sort of rejoined wow. with myself. So I wasn't in that sort of, you know, view any longer, but I was back in myself, but I was talking to God. And, and it's important to say here that all my life I've believed in God, but I didn't talk to God in that way. My faith was not a forefront kind of thing back in those days. Yep. And I remember I said, it was like I was speaking to God and I said, if this is your will for my life, I'd like put my hands like this. And I said, I surrender. Like I like, okay. Wow. And I felt this, it, it's like hard to, it's impossible, not hard. It's impossible to use human words to describe I, what it felt like. I know. I, I've heard that so many times and I'm like, but I want, but I want to be like, but give me like something. Give me, give <laughs> yeah, me something. I mean, it was like light. Mm -hmm. It was like a full surrender. Like the only thing in the physical experience that I can match it to is, you know, when you're getting surgery mm -hmm. and then you, they give you the anesthesia and then you like, like right there yeah. when you're like, yeah, like oh, that yeah. full uh -huh. relax, like yep. you're just, there's no resistance. Like you're not yeah. gripping anymore. Yeah. It's like a little bit of that, but divine love. Mm -hmm. Like I just knew in a flash, like everything was going to be okay. If I died, Ani would be okay. If I'd like the people that I had the gift of doing my life with yeah. would love her 
so unconditionally that she would be so like, I just, it was like perfection. Literally it's, there's like perfection and just Mm. pure magic in that moment. And so I just surrendered fully into it. My soul, like all of it, just like, okay, let go of everything. And I tell you, Brent, in that moment of divine surrender, it was like a switch just went like this. And I opened my eyes and I was awake again in the room. And the anesthesiologist who was basically in charge, because I remember a moment prior, before I went out, the surgeon going, how can I help? And I'm thinking, (laughs) that's not a good sign that she's asking him what is going on here? Because nobody was telling me. And um, so he says, go, go, go. And then the surgeon began the procedure and Ani emerged into the world and my body was whole and healthy. And Ben came in a little bit later and we were parents and I was like literally had a quantum leap in consciousness and everything was changed, even though I had no perception of what had just gone down or, and nobody knew that I had that experience. And so I think this is the other really important part of this. So I had this beautiful life altering moment. Like I was changed and I became a mother, which as you know, changes you hundred percent beyond, right? Massive. Yep. I'm in the recovery room and the nurses are working on Ani and the anesthesiologist and Ben are at the foot of my bed. And there was a nurse like tending to me. And I remember out of the corner of my ear, hearing the anesthesiologist say to Ben, like a, like clockwork theme of my life. She could breathe the whole time. She was fine. She was fine. He's denouncing the truth of my experience to my husband who doesn't even know what just happened. And I hear these words and I just am like, he's lying, but I didn't say anything. You know, I didn't say a word. Later, I learned that this particular anesthesiologist in his 25-year career had never had this happen before. Got it. So he was covering his ass. Yes. And also, thank you for the gift Mm -hmm. because apparently that needed to happen. And just me even being able to tell this story today is also a furthering of the gift of that part of that story. Yeah. Yeah, So that happened. And it's, there was no way now coming out of there that I'm the same, like I'm not. And I now have a child and it's, I felt like I couldn't, it was like trying to fit into old shoes. They just don't fit anymore. Like I can't play the game that way anymore. Can't do it. it. Can't do it. And so I I went back to work after my maternity leave because I had to like personal provisions, logistics, didn't have my business launched, started a baby little photography business, uh, somehow booked some weddings and did some of those things, Brent, like I was just trying, you know, I'm just going to do what I can use the, use the skills that, that I have and, figure this out. I'm just going to figure it out. And so I remember going back to work and, and like having all these experiences and just feeling literally like I was from another planet and like the lack of compassion that I felt from people. I just thought this isn't that important to me anymore. Like the, here's what was important to me. The people were important to me, Mm. but the ways in which we were doing things just didn't make sense. And I also understood like, I'm not gonna be able to change this. Mm because I'm needed somewhere else. And where was that somewhere else? At home with my daughter, not missing the moments. I could never get a replay on or a do-over on and launching the business of my heart, the business of my dreams to help other people do the same. Business of your heart. That is the greatest way to put it. So you woke up like me in a very different way through having a child. And one quick question, just technical. Um, did the anesthesiologist give you too much? Was that what happened? Did he over? He did. Yeah. It's, a, it's called a high spinal. Uh-huh. 
And so I guess anytime I've talked to an anesthesiologist about it, they're like, oh yeah, like it's like a normal, I guess it's a normal thing. But if you do research on them, you will, they can make people's hearts stop. It's pretty dangerous. So yeah, when I I had a lot of PTSD, I had to work through after Uh that experience, especially when I started to understand what it was and that nobody would talk to me for all of the obvious reasons. And because me and my child were both whole and healthy and fine, we had no grounds to you know, have any sort of legal action. And frankly, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the fact that I am alive. That's the greatest gift I could possibly have. Yeah. Yeah. And PTSD in the sense of like the fact that you went through that experience and it was sort of minimized and wasn't that, that whole, yeah, got that. Yes. And then also our bodies carry memories. Right. right? And so when I, I, I do like dry needling, I do a lot of different modalities to support my body's healing. Obviously former division one athlete with lots of places where I need support. I also am like, a person who still only knows how to do things at that level. And then my body is not at that same level of training. And so then I have to pay for it. I know you guys get that, but I was like having a needling session. And during one of those sessions, the needle went in and it, I just was like transported back to the operating room and I felt like I couldn't breathe. And so thankfully I have an amazing practitioner, Dr. Crystal Couture, and she was able to like be with me and help me heal. And yep. I, she did this whole healing thing where I was like talking to him and, and we wow, like cool. did this whole, and like how scared he was. Cause he was scared too. And it was like this I very, bet. very healing exercise. But I, yeah, like with breath and things like that yeah. for a while, I had a lot of memory, sure. fear, memory stored there for myself. Yeah. Wow, that is fascinating. Obviously never knew that part of your story, but unbelievable. So you come back as a mom who has just had this life-changing experience, this like this awakening, if you will, go back to work and know that this is, it's like, it you don't fit anymore. I completely understand yeah. this concept. So how do you make the transition to this the, what did you call it? Business of heart, business of my business heart, business of my heart, business yeah. of my heart. You cannot describe something more divine business of my heart. Like how amazing would it be if everyone was doing business of their heart? Mm. Yes. I mean, that's what my work is about I is know. helping people to do that. I, and, and I'm so passionate about it because it. it's what heals. Just look at the generational healing that happens in what my daughter's experience gets to be like. She's never known her mother in any other way than having the business of her heart and being with her and her dad, you know, we retired Ben from his police career, which was also similarly was not a right fit for him anymore. In 2017, we retired him from that career. And now he's a podcast producer and he he's home, right? Like he's with her right now. I heard them like laughing and having an awesome time earlier today, playing and having their relationship. So Ani just knows her life with her parents. That's not normal. That's not what my life was growing up. And my mom actually was an entrepreneur very gifted photographer. She was published in Powder Magazine. She had her own um, agency and she would hire photographers and and then have them go out and work for corporate clients. And she had this incredible business that she sold because of what happened to me. And so my mom was an entrepreneur back in the eighties and had a very successful business. And so to me, in a way, Brent, it's like me creating this business is almost like redemption, right? Like for my mom too. And for my daughter, it's like, it's really, it's really beautiful and meaningful. And I didn't get that until maybe a couple of years into my business of connecting those dots. But that's why it was so important to me. It's, it wasn't just about me. It was like, redemption for my mother because she was so gifted. And so 
I, so to answer your question, mm-hmm. I was burning the midnight oil. I was working like a dog. I, I was <laughs> trying to get this baby to sleep. We had one of the ones that didn't do that very well. And oh Lord, and Ben was working the night shift and I had this job that wouldn't quit with yeah. like the nights and the weekends and the events and trying to like keep it all together. But I just knew, and I, I hired a mentor and she just said to me, you know, it's like, she looked me in the eye and she was like, these are the days that are going to make way for the days of the future. And you just have to, you just have to get through this. Yep. And I had so many times in my life where I'd done things like that before. I remember when I was learning how to juggle a soccer ball, trying to make the Olympic development program team, right. Mm-hmm. And starting out that season, not being able to even do three juggles in a row and being out in the streets in February in New Hampshire, like knocking over trash cans and kicking the ball in the snow banks, like by myself for hours, trying to get the patterns to improve my touch and get better and being told like, you're one spot away, you're not going to make it to the regional oh. pool game. And then I was like, oh, you better believe it. And by the time we went to regionals, I was a starter. I played 90 minutes. Give me a challenge. That was the last thing I was going to say. It's the last thing you say to someone <laughs> like with your makeup. Yeah, completely yeah, get like, that. Yeah. Give me a challenge. So same, right? It was like, yep. I knew... Mm what needed to happen. And I was willing to put in the work and I enrolled in a program and I just studied like what everybody was doing and what was going to work for me. And what was my core competency? This is really important. Like you want to make that leap. A, you have to know the, you got to have a plan. What are your personal provisions? What are the numbers? What can you scale back to make that less pressure? What are you going to sell? What's the demand? And how, like, how are you going to do that? And so I was like one of the top sport marketing professionals in the country. I know branding, I know marketing, I know sales, I know this stuff. Like, how do I leverage that? And I just figured it out. You know, I drilled down and I offered some invitations to people and ultimately entrepreneurs started hiring me. And I started with one-to-one coaching and, and selling packages. And before I knew it, I was making more money in a month than I was in my corporate job. And of course, then annually that increased. And then, so I gave my notice though, Brent, with one client. So I think that's another important, like it was a bold move, but I just remembered thinking, look, if I can get one client, I could probably get two. If I can get two, I can probably get three. And if I trade in this 40 hour work week that I'm doing right now, and I even take half of that and contribute it towards my business and give the rest to my family, like I'm going to be so much happier. I'm going to be healthier. I'm not going to have to deal with all the BS anymore. And I like, I'm going to bet on myself. And I did. Yes, you did. And I know we, we have to end shortly. Two questions. First one, when You are at an event and someone comes up to you and says, Amber, so what do you do? How do you respond? Yeah, I say I'm a branding strategist and a business coach and um, I have a podcast and I host live events and I'm also an author. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Just simple. Yeah. Yeah. Clear and concise. As you create content, which you do so well, and specifically just when you get on and you hop on with the phone and, and you do your content... In the beginning, was there were, were, was there trepidation in doing that? Give me some color on that because that's a, I mean, like a lot of people struggle with that, quite honestly. Yeah, I think that the place where I had the most trepidation was like just worrying about what other people would think, yeah. especially like my former colleagues. Mm-hmm. And I remember my, my coach saying to me, like, you're going from being a somebody to a nobody. Yeah. And that's a humbling thing. And I was like, okay, yeah, like that's a helpful frame. And so I'm just going to have to build this up. Like who the heck is this Amber yeah. Lillian person? Yeah. And I was afraid to like take my name at the beginning. In fact, I launched my business as brand love coach because mm. I just was like, who am I to be Amber Lillian, which is such a funny thing to say. Who are we not to be like you are yeah. like, we all should just be able to like own that. But 
it was awkward and it was challenging, but I was so competitive in a way, right? Yeah. Like I'm gonna, I refuse, like failure is off the table. I'm with you. Like it's just literally not an you. option here. Uh-huh. And so like, I'll figure out whatever it is I have to do to yep. make this thing roll and work. And yep. I just wanted to retire Ben so badly. I was like, it was my number one dream. I want to like get him out of this job. I want to, you know, have him home and let him like do his healing work that he needs to yeah, do of course. and have give Ani her dad in this way. And so I said all these like little benchmarks that were carrots for me, like challenges for me. And I know that about myself. Like I, I need something to focus on to work towards. But the thing that's cool, Brent, is that those things have shifted to become like states of being. Yeah. And it's okay. Mm. Making a half a million dollars, like those things are cool, yeah. but it's like what state of being yeah. aligns with that kind of abundance. Yes. And I've just never been more, content and rooted and just like I can tell me yeah it's un- it's fascinating to spend time with you and I'm truly grateful that uh, that you took the time and last and I know I said two questions I'm going to just last one so many of us are in that looking for our unique seed any parting words of wisdom for us who are looking to really move into that seed and then I will let you go I promise we can go to the buzzer Brent it's all good <laughs> you you know me you know what I'm going to say and you can take the words out of my mouth if the dream is in you it's for you yeah. and I believe that in the the deepest way possible. I do not think that our dreams can steer us wrong. I think they are the clearest path to our calling. And I think the world society tries to steer us away from those dreams because the reality is, is that some of our dreams are weird, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think our dreams are made to make sense. Like a six-year-old being like, I'm going to be a keynote speaker and an author someday. Be like, oh, that's cute, honey. What does that even mean? I I saw it. I knew it. And then when I was in my other job, okay, you're going to be a, you know, motivational speaker and you're going to write books. Like, okay, we have work to do. What I want to say is your dream isn't meant to make sense, but it is made to lead you on the path to your highest calling and to humanity's highest level of evolution. And so the more of us that can follow the path of our dreams and commit ourselves to that and be unabashed about it, right? And be bold about it the more the world is just going to heal and the more fulfilled I think we become. And that old toxic notion of success, and I'm using air quotes on purpose there, just fizzles out, right? It just becomes irrelevant. And you can be as excited for somebody to have a six-figure job offer as you are for somebody who just finished their first piece of pottery because that's what they're excited about. Yeah. Absolutely amazing, amazing. If the dream is in you, it is for you. Wow. Hey, thanks for being with us today and joining me in my mission to help 100 million children live out their greatest life. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the Awakened Dad podcast and share with your friends and follow us on Instagram at The Awakened Dad. If you like what you heard today, please make sure to listen to our other episodes and thank you for being with us. 